Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where again we are in our new programming, which has us talking the stuff of just not church history, but uh, looking at history through the prism of all of the great Christian thinkers of our faith. And so we have arrived at the point where we can now talk about, arguably, arguably for many, the greatest Christian thinker, uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, We kind of set this program up a little bit last week in the discussion we had on monastic theology and scholastic theology. We spoke briefly to Thomas Aquinas and uh, the Summa Theologia. So so this will be a fun program. Looking forward to it. And again, because it's Monday, I do have uh, John O'Hara with me. So John, great to have you with me another evening. Can't think of a better place to be on Monday evening, Joe, than right here. Thank you. <laughs> so, John, St. Thomas Aquinas, as I just noted, for some, arguably the greatest Christian thinker. It's interesting, if you were to go into the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you find him quoted 61 times, at least wow. 61 times. Now, if you were to do a count <laughs> in the world of uh, trivia and, and footnotes, uh, St. Augustine is actually quoted more than Thomas Aquinas. Now, what's interesting, though, about the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and we were talking a little bit about this before, John, is if you were to look at uh, Thomas's great achievement in the Summa, in many ways, the Summa is structured as the Catechism is structured, and for those out there who are unfamiliar with the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it is structured in four uh, pillars, four parts. The first part is really about faith and what we believe in. The second part is about the sacramental economy, the liturgy, okay? The third part is uh, ethics, the moral life in Christ. And the fourth part is about prayer. So if you're a theologian or a budding theologian out there, the first part is about systematic theology. The second part is about sacramental theology. The third part is about moral theology. And the fourth part is about spiritual theology. All four parts make up the whole of, of what we believe in. And certainly, when you study the Catechism of the Catholic Church, sacred Scripture is everywhere, as it is in the Summa. Because in the Summa, certainly, we quickly discover that uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, had a great love for the Word of God. So, This evening, again, we will talk just not about some of the biographical pieces of St. Thomas, but we will certainly focus in on the importance of his role in establishing a foundation for how we think about the faith as it relates to faith and reason. Uh, Let me begin with the end of his life. He died in 1274. He was 49 years old, and he had had some sort of mystical experiences this was terribly moving to him, and he said, everything I have written so far is like straw. Now, he had written probably the best that's ever been written, and he was saying, this is like straw. Therefore, mm-hmm. to him, God, kind of in his mind, in his heart, was what it is all about. Mm-hmm. Everybody who studies spirituality, that we try to get as close to heaven as we can this side of the grave, mm-hmm. and for a while, he seemed to have, his writings and all of his scholarship 
was as nothing compared to that. Mm-hmm. Now, he died shortly thereafter at Fossanova, a, a Cistercian abbey in Italy. And the abbot of that, of that abbey at Fossanova was blind. Mm. And upon touching St. Thomas's body, the blindness was cured. Mm. So they wanted to keep the body there, but there was quite a bit of maneuvering for the body. Eventually, after some time, it was in Italy for a couple of years, and they did have relics, so they, a finger was given to his sister and various parts of his body were given elsewhere. I'm sorry. Well, anyway, that was just the custom of the time. Sure, sure. He wound up in France, and his body got moved around. French Revolution uh, caused some uh, issues. Eventually, it was buried again in France, and then in 1974, it is where it is currently in Toulouse, France. Mm-hmm. And uh, so those are his remains, and hope he remains there for a while. So when mm-hmm. I began with the end of his life, he was born around 1224, 1225, uh, to a fairly well-to-do family, up definitely upper middle class, close to uh, Monte Cassino, uh, maybe 15 miles south. And his, they had his life planned out for him before he was ready to go to kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And he was going to go to Monte Cassino and be the abbot. And he did go there until he was maybe about 12 years old. And then he went to Naples, uh, a university down there, did very well. And he discovered the Dominican order. And he wanted to be a Dominican. And his family said, no way, you're going to go to this abbey. He said, no, I'm going to be a Dominican. So his uh, family put him in sort of a, a, a castle-like jail for almost a year. I don't think we're quite sure how long. And one of the stories is that at one point they brought a woman of easy virtue in and uh, to <laughs> tempt him. And he went after her with a, uh, a fire poker. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he, he may have escaped, whatever it is, they let him go. And he went to France, to uh, Paris, there he met St. Albert. St. Albert took him with him to Cologne, and there he studied a lot about theology. And uh, he was there for about oh, five or so years, and he did a lot of early writing there, good stuff. And uh, he was ordained around oh, maybe 1252, ordained a priest, and he earned his bachelor's degree in theology. That meant he could return to Paris, and he taught with St. Bonaventure, a great Franciscan. So the two were together. And then they, they earned their master's degree in theology. Now, early on in this time, he wrote Being in Essence. If you want to read something that is brilliant, written by a kid, uh, maybe he was 20 or 21 when he wrote yeah, this, yeah. try Being in Essence, but you, you better be, you know, it's, it's not an easy read, but it's brilliant. And uh, he was in Paris with St. Bonaventure at, at that time, and then he went to Italy for about 10 years. And that time in Italy, uh, St. Sabina and some other places was a very fecund period for him. That is when he finished Summa Contra Gentilis, got most of Summa Theologia done, a lot mm-hmm. of other, you know, he did a lot of other writing too. Mm-hmm. And then he was called back to Paris for a while where he wrote some more. And there were disp- there's always these disputes and arguments. I mean, these were academics and all they did was argue back yeah. and forth a, yeah. a lot about who was the most important. I mean, not that he got involved <laughs> in that too much, but... Yeah. And then he was called to a um, conference down in Italy where he went, and on the way he got ill and then died at Fossanova at the age of 49. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John, I find it a most fascinating thing to study these great Christian thinkers as we have, and uh, just to be moved by how young they were with some of the great literary uh, feats. Certainly we see this with some of the doctors of the Church, and it ought to be a reminder for some of us, especially those of us who are parents You know, we live in an age of social media where our iPhones, iPods, and iPads are constantly reminding ourselves about the importance of I, right? Um, To to encourage our kids to pull back from that and to be more feverish in uh, their study of the faith, really. uh, So important. 
And how about, John, growing up with a place like Monte Cassino as your backdrop? I mean, this was not only a great monastery by its sheer size, but this was the place where so many great monks accomplished so many great things, where, where ordinary men became saints. I mean, imagine growing up and the University of Notre Dame was in your backyard, how that might impact the way you think about the world, or take any one uh, great school monastery and how it might impact the way you think. You know, when I was in Oxford, I found myself just wanting to be a better student. Location has impact upon us, and I've got to believe for young Thomas, uh, living so close to Monte Cassino, where so many men became great saints, had an impact on the way he thought and how he ultimately uh, viewed the world. And how about that relationship with St. Albert the Great, another uh, profound, deep bond of uh, friendship, one that was uh, notably unique in the way it was built up between just not prayer and time spent together, but study. I don't know about you, John, but when I was reading about Thomas Aquinas as it relates to his relationship with St. Albert the Great, I was really made to reflect on a more personal level about my own relationships, about my own friendships, about how the deeper bonds are those rooted in our faith, yes, but also study. The, the more time you spend with the Word of God and the more time you spend with others who want to spend time with the Word of God, yeah. studying the faith, there's something that builds up within that, yeah. uh, that deep bond. You know, I, I think of the, the Trinity. When you look at the Trinity, this is perfect friendship. Love given, love received, love shared. That's the Trinity, this perfect eternal exchange of love. It is eternal friendship. Yeah. And it, what lies at the heart of it is, is love. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course, when you root a friendship in the study of love, in the study of truth, that is a friendship worth fighting for. And I just don't want to just really glance over uh, this point um, as we read the story of Thomas Aquinas, because these are invaluable to these men. Uh-huh. In fact, one commentator said, as it relates to the relationship between and friendship between Albert the Great and uh, Thomas Aquinas, he said it was invaluable to how we know Thomas Aquinas today in his great literary achievements um, and uh, in his great preaching and so on and so forth. So this can never be underestimated for sure. Now, I think that St. Albert the Great, who's also a doctor of the Church, was also quite into science. Yes. And and, and here's a rational thought. Mm -hmm. And... uh, St. Thomas was into theology and philosophy, but he did it in a rational way. So you can see a little bit of complementarity between the science of St. Albert and the philosophy of of St. Thomas, because that scholastic philosophy was uh, very, very rational. I mean, he didn't go off and wax on on Mm -hmm. nonsense. Yes, that's that's very important. And as we speak to this, John, let us get in a little bit to the science part of this and uh, why we look at St. Thomas Aquinas as so important. Because during this time, uh, the culture of the Latin world was profoundly stimulated by the encounter with Aristotle's works that had long remained unknown. It's to remember up to this point, Aristotle was kind of kept at arm's distance, right? Be it as culture was being renewed, people were beginning to look at Aristotle once again. 
And so when you look at Aristotle's works, what did you have? They were writings on the nature of knowledge, primarily now on the natural sciences, on metaphysics, on the soul, and on ethics. And uh, these writings were full of intuitions that appeared valid and convincing and were just kind of bubbling for students to, to weigh in on. Yeah, Plato and Aristotle probably knew each other, but they were quite different in that Plato believed that reality was actually in your ideas, mm-hmm. whereas Aristotle says, no, it's in nature. Mm-hmm. And I think Aristotle had the world being forever here. Mm-hmm. He you know, mm-hmm. was not a Christian. And there was the problem that Aristotle posed, is that he was uh, more into nature and science. Remember, he wrote some really great science books, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. he went into philosophy, physics, ethics, etc. But I think that was a little scary in that he was uh, a little bit too, shall we say, scientific for some of the minds at that time. Therefore, they found him possibly heretical, mm-hmm. not St. Thomas. No. Yeah. Ultimately, he saw Aristotle as essentially providing an overall vision of the world but one that had been developed before and without Christ. I mean, Aristotle could discern that God existed. Yes. He could discern that the, that the divine majesty is even to be loved, but he could never discern that God is love. Yeah, he did, yeah right. He, uh, Aristotle believed in God, and he gave proofs for God's existence, but that was as far as it went. And in light of what we're talking about right now, John, I think it'd be important to highlight as it relates to Aquinas and Aristotle that in his works, and he commented on most of his works, he was able to distinguish what was valid and what was dubious, and ultimately what was to be completely rejected. And as he was sorting through his works, he was able to extract the good in Aristotle, and ultimately in doing so, he brought about a deeper synthesis to faith and reason. And in many ways, this is the great achievement of St. Thomas Aquinas, especially as uh, St. John Paul the Great talks about it in uh, Faith and Reason, in how faith and reason go hand in hand uh, to better contemplate truth. Uh, Certainly this is what comes out of of the Summa itself. Let me just go off a little bit on some of the way that Thomas organized the Summa Theologia. Uh, We went into this last time, I'm just going to kind of repeat myself, but the heart of it is what is called an article. And the article was posed as a question. And one of the questions he did not ask is, what is God? You see, that's too general. Mm -hmm. He asked whether God is a body. He wanted his questions to be answered yes or no, because that would force him to give a more precise answer. And after he gave you the question, whether God is a body, he's going to go and say, well, there are three reasons why God is a body. One, two, three. Mm -hmm. And then he would say, and then he would give you the uh, writings of other people who said, no, God is not a body. Mm-hmm. And he would list them. St. Augustine referred to a lot. Mm-hmm. St. Paul, probably the most of all. And then he would say, I say, God is not a body. And then he'd go back and he would refute each one of his three first things that said God is a body, and he would refute them. And then he would conclude. So this is maybe takes a page and a half to mm-hmm. go through this particular article, whether God is a body. And what I want to get across is how logical this whole thing was. That, you know, and I mean, it really, he was right down to the question. Yes or no would be a simple way to answer his questions, and then he'd go right through it. 
Yeah, you noted last week, John, that he poses a better argument than maybe the one who actually does, doesn't yes. believe in God. Right. And yes. I, I go to that, John, because I was going through some of the testimonies of uh, his former students, those testimonies that have come down to us through the ages. And uh, there was one student in particular who said, you know, I was not one who believed in the Orthodox God, but I tell you what, I could never <laughs> formulate my argument with such precision like that of Thomas Aquinas. And in fact, he had such an ability to be so precise with his words that he convinced me in the end that uh, it was more reasonable to believe in God. Yeah. And I thought that was just one of, uh, among the many uh, great testimonies. This is a little aside. During Thomas's life, the Feast of Corpus Christi was instituted, and this mm-hmm. was important because, you know, the, the uh, communion, Eucharist, was instituted on Holy Thursday, but it kind of, a downer happens the next day. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was a feeling that, you know, the Eucharist wasn't really getting celebrated enough. And you know, this anecdote came from Father Groeschel, whom I just love. But mm-hmm. anyway, mm-hmm. the Pope got St. Bonaventure and and uh, Thomas Aquinas to, you know, we're going to have this feast called uh, Corpus Christi. Could you guys please write some liturgical stuff for us? Mm-hmm. And they both did. And Thomas Aquinas goes to the Pope, and he shows him Tantu Mergo, Pongia Lingua Gloriosa, this great stuff. And the Pope says, that's very good, Thomas. Okay, Mano Bonaventure, what do you have? And he says, I just put it in the waste paper basket. <laughs> and so but the, all, all, the, all those great songs, Tantu Mergo, Pongia Lingua Gloriosa, Thomas Aquinas wrote those. Yeah, well, Tom... What talent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Thomas had an exquisitely Eucharistic soul. And by that, I mean his profound love for the Eucharist came out in in his words. And this is what we encounter. You know, Thomas Aquinas is called the angelic doctor. Why the angelic yeah. doctor, uh, John? Because of his intellectual purity. Yes. Right? His, his almost... Um, angelic use of words. He was so refined. When you hear someone teach the faith, or when you hear someone preach the faith, when their words are so precise, there is something that you are drawn Mm -hmm. into. And in many ways, it is the very life of God, because when you start talking about God, and this is Thomas Aquinas himself now, we must understand that there is a purity, an order, a structure, a wholeness that when you are communicating stuff about God, you're just drawn into Him, right? And certainly, we are to never reduce the faith to just the mind and the intellect. But in the articulation of words and their precise meaning, the heart begins to leap, you know. And again, this is another Thomas Aquinas moment. And so this is why it's so important for us to whether we're here on the radio station, John, or we're given talk before someone, to pray up to make sure that uh, what we say and how we say it is coming across the way it ought to be coming across. That that was just widely important for Thomas Aquinas, um, because otherwise our words are uh, risk of being uh, empty, you know, void of, of meaning, void of, of purpose. As we're talking here, John, I'm also thinking of the word clarity, you know, claritas, uh, that which belongs to the beautiful. Huh? So when we speak with clarity, uh, especially about God, we, we are drawn into the beauty of God. All of this, John, is so important. Yeah, we all have our deadlines, and we all want to look good when our deadlines come, but prayer is hugely important. Just to get off topic, some priest was having a lot of trouble, he had a lot of deadlines, and he talked to uh, St. Mother Teresa, and she says, well, how's your prayer life? She says, I don't have time to pray, I'm just busy, mm-hmm. but she said, no, 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 no. 
You and that helped. That's right. You see, and prayer is hugely important. With that, John Thomas Aquinas saw the liturgy as the sum total of of the faith. He had a Eucharistic soul, and uh, as we talk about the Eucharist and we talk about the liturgy, uh, I noted there earlier that we don't often think of Thomas Aquinas as a preacher per se. We think of him as a writer and a teacher. Uh, being one of the great teachers over at the University of Paris. But uh, he was a great preacher. Uh, And I note that, as many commentators do, because what's so important for us to understand here, John, is yes, we can have an intellect that grasps these very high meanings, these very dense thoughts, but to take all of that and to be able to put it in layman terms, comprehensible terms for those in the pew is an extraordinary thing, you know, Benedict XVI called this one of uh, Augustine's great conversions, because like Aquinas, he had this muscle-bound intellect that would not quit, right? Yeah. Yet he found it very difficult to take all of that all of that philosophy and all of that theology and put it into terms where the, the person, the pew, could understand. Thomas Aquinas was very gifted in this area, and uh, Benedict XVI says this is a great and profound grace, yes. um, who I think himself... Uh, sees that before him in in his own life. Yes. So very very important to be thinking about these things, because when you read Thomas Aquinas, yes, he is dense. Uh, Yes, it might seem even abstract at points, whatever you're reading. But when you spend time with him, you'll quickly find that you want to know what? There's stuff in here for me to chew on. And there's stuff in here for me to pray with, for me to be a better version of who God is calling me to be. You know, John, here we are talking about... uh, Thomas Aquinas being a preacher, and this for some is a lesser known thing about him, and it's to remember he is a Dominican, right? What are those initials that belong to uh, the Dominican religious community? But OP, what does OP stand for? But the order of preachers, right? The order of preachers. And in many ways, as some have said, St. Thomas Aquinas set the standard for preaching. Now, if you wish to find out some more about Thomas Aquinas, there is a ton of books about him. Certainly G.K. Chesterton's book on uh, Thomas Aquinas is a classic. Uh, Joseph Pieper, uh, P-I-E-P-E-R, excellent source of information about Thomas Aquinas. That was the first book I read about him. Another man is Peter Kreeft, uh, K-R-E-E-F-T. He has done, he has two excellent books about uh, Thomas Aquinas, The Summa of the Summa, and a newer one called Practical Theology. And I, of course, want to mention the Penguin uh, edition of Thomas Aquinas, edited by the brilliant uh, Notre Dame theologian Ralph McInerney. We mentioned him last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, Thomas is there, and if you uh, take the time to read the Penguin Thomas Aquinas, it's about 500, 600 pages, you'll know a lot uh, about the Catholic Church, God, and all kinds of things. It's really, it's very good. And just a little aside, the Summa Contra Gentilis is somewhat of an, an apologetics book, a summary of people who don't believe in God. Mm-hmm. Here's why you should do this. Mm-hmm. Yes, John, and therein lies his relevance, right? There's a tendency today to hear names like St. Thomas Aquinas, a name that belongs to the Middle Ages, and just say to ourselves, well, he was speaking truth for his time, for his age. But as we've noted in the past, John, what lies at the heart of our faith is that truth is not subject to time. I mean, what did Jesus Christ himself say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. By saying the and not a, he is establishing himself as the incarnation of truth as what? 
absolute truth. He is the incarnation of truth, truth that transcends time. Truth is not subject to time the way we so often think about it today, right? So when you take up men like Augustine, um, Basil the Great, Thomas Aquinas, what we quickly see is their relevance, um, because truth itself is always relevant. It is not subject to time. That's a great danger. Well, we evolve. No, truth evolves in the context of, you know, the truth of Joe Holcraft is evolving uh, quite literally before my eyes as I'm getting more gray here. But the essence of who I am is not changing, right? So it's so important to appreciate that. And I say that because there is a tendency, John, to just kind of look at these guys and say, well, you know, they belong to another time period. No, we pick up these reads because they help us to better understand our faith. They help us to equip ourselves with that understanding that allows us to engage our brothers and sisters in 2015 in those reasoned arguments yeah. that might have us going just not deeper in our own faith, but deeper in those, in those conversations where we do discover the wonder and beauty of God. Okay, Joe, I don't see any gray hair on your head, as opposed to myself. I don't have any hair on my head. But, well, I've um, got a lot of sandy blonde okay. hair, John. You just, uh, it's hiding. Okay. Um, Thomas Aquinas, upon his death, there was a lot of controversy in Paris about his writings. And that generally dissipated. And when we come to the Council of Trent, he was the hero of that particular council. That was probably one of the most important councils in the history of the Church, the Council of Trent. Mm hmm came out during the Reformation, and Leo XIII, uh, whom I, I think someday will be a, a saint, he wrote an encyclical called, called Eterni Patris, which uh, brought Thomas Aquinas out at, say, around 1895, around in there, and he had a lot of, uh, a very substantial interest in Thomas Aquinas was revived in the first half of the 20th century, mm -hmm. and uh, Jacques Mariton was a, a, just a, one of the probably most substantial philosophers of the first half of the 20th century. Now, Thomas's may not be read as much, which I think is unfortunate, uh, maybe in the second half of the 20th century, but boy, have we had problems in the t second half of the 20th century from the point of view of, of thinking. Well, I, I think that point you make right there, John, you know, this area where we have problems is we don't apply logic. Oh. Okay, again, logic is the instrument to reason, right? And how often have we talked about the importance of being able to take that instrument we've been given logic as <clears throat> and reason to be able to engage these dialogues. We don't want to have that dialogue about right and wrong. And ultimately, the whole point of Thomas Aquinas' Summa is that there is a right and there is a wrong, which, of course, is a reflection of sacred scripture itself. Constantly, we see this page after page in the gospel text itself. There's a right way of doing things, and there's a wrong way of doing things. And we have to be able to accept the fact that uh, it's okay to say it's wrong to do that. It's actually part of the gospel. It's part of the good news, because behind every no is an immeasurable greater yes. And when we enter into this greater truth, we quickly discover the beauty of God. All we want to talk about today is our feelings. Yep. Thomas wanted to talk about truth. Amen, John. I wanted to uh, wrap up with a, a soundbite here from Benedict XVI, and, and he says this, you know, that the life and teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas could be summed up in an episode passed down by his ancient biographers, a very famous one here, John. While, as was his wont, the saint was praying before the crucifix in the early morning in the chapel of St. Nicholas in Naples, the church sacristan overheard a conversation. 
Thomas was anxiously asking whether what he had written on the mysteries of the Christian faith was correct, and the crucified one answered him, You have spoken well of me, Thomas. What is your reward to be? And Thomas responded, Nothing but yourself, Lord. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.